Last week in Revelation, we looked at chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, which served as an introduction, kind of an overview, to the more detailed images we will get into this week in our text this morning, which will go from 21.9 through 22.5. And this will be the end of the visions in Revelation, uh, starting in verse 6 of chapter 22, we begin John's epilogue, and uh, Marty will take that up next week. So let's get into this. There's quite a bit here. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the tribes the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates on the north three gates on the south three gates on the west three gates and the wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb so if we put ourselves in the uh, shoes as I've tried to do occasionally of a first century believer who maybe is hearing or reading Revelation for the first time, something's going to sound familiar about this passage. And it takes us back to verse chapter 17, which started out, And then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bulls, came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. Clear contrast going on here Uh, between the visions of the woman Babylon and the vision of the bride of the Lamb. Instead of wilderness, John was carried to a great high mountain, and instead uh, of the great prostitute, we see the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, there's an Old Testament model for this. Goes back to Ezekiel verse uh, chapter 40, and, and that starts out. Uh, In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain. And what chapters 40 through 48 of Ezekiel contain is a vision of Ezekiel about the restoration of the temple, the new temple that was going to be in Jerusalem. And it has uh, uh, things about the priesthood. It has things about the uh, people and the restored land. Uh, Lots of measurements going on which we'll see. Now, John's vision continued with the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You know, this juxtaposing those two unlike visions, a city and a bride. We don't usually put those things together in the same, same picture. And these differing images make it clear that John's visions all through this section, and this is important, are going to be primarily about the people of God and not about the architectural details of a future urban center. Again, as we noted last week uh, in verse 2 of chapter 21, the movement was from heaven to earth, not from earth to heaven. 
we are and we will always be earthly creatures. The phrase in verse 11 about the glory of God like a jasper and as a crystal, clear as crystal, really is a reminder, takes us back to chapter 4, Revelation, and he who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Heaven was now more closely connected to earth than it had been since the Garden of Eden. The fall of that, from that original creation, thanks to our forebears in humanity, uh, brought that connection to an end, that close relationship that used to be there. God's heavenly splendor, as one commentator put it, is as seen in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, now fills the new world. You may notice in this text a few occurrences of the number 12. And that continues in the rest of chapter 21 and even into the beginning of chapter 22. The symbolic number 12 shows up 11 times in, the, in this passage we're looking at this morning, this text, along with some additional factors of the number 12. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that 12 might be important to this, this passage. Now, 12, if you recall, is the symbolic number, complete the complete order or totality of the people of God is often what 12 is referring to. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, uh, lots of 12s in the, in the Old and New Testaments. But in this vision, we have 12 gates, three on each of four sides, 12 angels, 12 names of 12 tribes, 12 foundations adorned with 12 precious stones, 12 names of the 12 apostles, 12,000 stadia, which is 12 times 1,000, indicating a large number, 12 pearls, 12 kinds of fruit, 144 cubits in the wall, that's 12 gates times 12 foundations. We'll talk about that a little bit. And for your real math, math you know, nerds here, we're going to find out this is a cube, and any plane on that cube is 144 million square stadia. Lots of 12s is the point here. Now, what do we do with these? How much do we build in to these counts, to these numbers? The primary thing, as it says right there, is they're people of God is what we're talking about. Now, there's 12 tribes, it says, and we know in the Old Testament there's lists of 12 tribes, but we also know they aren't consistent. In fact, we saw another variation in chapter 7 of those variable lists that you see in the Old Testament. This should tell us that the specific names of the 12 tribes were not as important as the number of the tribes. They're all here. The same is true for the name of the 12 apostles. Uh, the names, the actual names, really aren't what's important here. In fact, attempts to come up with a definitive list of both the tribal names and the apostles' names here are going to be pretty speculative at the best. What is much more interesting to me about this picture is about the tribes and the apostles is a reversal of what uh, John or anyone else might have expected historically you would think it made more sense that 12 tribes were the foundation and 12 apostles were the gates but that's not the way this is put together so why is that reversed 
or what you would think the tribes are the foundation of everything that comes forward. But no, they're put in a different place now. And now the apostles, the New Testament representatives, are in the foundation. And I think what we have here is really a, a, a nod. It doesn't ever say it specifically, but I think it's well worth connecting to the new covenant. Uh, Jeremiah wrote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with those of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. If you remember back to Hebrews a couple of years ago, when we did that, uh, Hebrews 18, there was an argument there where the writer of the Hebrews spoke of the new covenant, and uh, he made the argument that the first one was obsolete. And what became was becoming obsolete and growing old was already vanishing away. The new covenant is going to take over. When we take communion as a body, often we're reminded or we read uh, Paul's words to the Corinthians that in the same way Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So... I think maybe that might have something to do with how this reversal is going on. We're going to see another reversal similar to this before we're done. Just to keep moving because it's a long passage, uh, the next section kind of continues from it. We're going to see more twelves. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I think it's safe to say, if nothing else about this, that you've never seen anything like that before. The passage began with another allusion, actually, to Ezekiel, but Ezekiel 40 through 48 is probably not the best model for this part of Revelation 21. Ezekiel's vision lacked a detailed description of the city itself, and that's what this is all about. The source probably came from the background that we have in a couple of passages in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 54, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all of your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and the great shall be the peace, and great shall be the peace of your children. And then Zechariah has this, to be lifted my eyes 
And I saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the width and what is its length. Now, we've actually seen a measurement once before, back in chapter 11. It says, John, I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court of the outside temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. <clears throat> when we looked at that passage, we talked about John's measuring and the significance of measuring, both in, in chapter 11 of Revelation and in uh, the Old Testament, was a symbolic accounting for the purpose of protection and preservation of the people of God. You measure to kind of be sure it's all there. Be sure all that are supposed to be there. <clears throat> In the text of Revelation 21, this is a picture of the totality of God's people since the creation. They've all been resurrected now. We saw that in chapter 20. And now come together in the image of the new Jerusalem. Getting back to John's vision, so you can kind of see the text if you don't have it in front of you. The symbolic nature of the measuring was highlighted by the fact that the same rod was both units and cubits, which are 18 inches, and stadia, which is 607 feet. So it's quite a rod to be measuring things with. I think it's symbolic. Anyway, the 12,000 stadia is almost 1,380 miles, by the way. The, uh, John wrote its length and width and height are equal. That's where he got the cube thing from. And then multiplying, of course, any symbolic number by 1,000 represented a very large number. Since the city was a bride, that is, God's people, then this is probably an equivalent expression to what we saw back in chapter 7, where the redeemed were a great multitude that no one could number. <clears throat> the cube shape of the city seems strange until we realize it was probably intended as an illusion to the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. In 1 Kings 6, we read, The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, and overlaid with pure gold. John's vision of the New Jerusalem, we have the whole city is the inner sanctuary. The whole city is the Holy of Holies. Our astute first century audience that we've talked about would have picked up also on the number 144. Now, that only takes three numeric characters in, uh, in English, but in the Greek text, it's 26 letters. So it would have been noticed. <laughs> you wouldn't miss that one very easy. It occurred three times previously. In chapter 7, verse 4, and I heard the number of the redeemed, 144,000. And in Revelation 14.1, John had a vision, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And later in that same chapter, in verse 3, and they were singing a new song. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had be redeemed from the earth. So we're all about counting and accounting for the entire people of God. That's what all these images are for. We don't want to get too bogged down in the details of them or you miss the main point. It's interesting 
that there's a parenthetical comment in here, I think, of the, about the 144 cubits, that it was by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now, why was that little piece of parentheses stuck in there? I think it actually could be more important uh, than you may think, more significant than you may think. We easily forget that angels, while they live in a different place of creation than ours, don't live outside of creation. Angels are created beings just like we are created beings. When you talk about the theology of these things in the Bible, you got to kind of keep two sort of big words in mind as you think about it. One is transcendent. And transcendent is has, you know, means having an existence outside and apart from anything created. An existence outside and apart from anything created. The other word is eminent. And eminent means having an existence inside the time and space of the earth and, and the creation and the heaven. Heaven is imminent, just like the earth is. The only thing that's transcendent is where God is. That's way above and outside all of us. He exists from eternity past to eternity future. Everything about the angels, the heaven, the new earth, people, is all creation that starts at a time. It will go forward for eternity, but it started at a time when it was not God was. The fact that this unit of measurement is the same for both human and angelic beings, I think, points to that reality. It seems like a funny little comment, but it really says that to us and tells us that maybe in a way we've never seen before, the portions of creation, of God's creation, will have a contact with each other like they've never had before. The 12 precious stones listed in verses 19 and 20, besides being a challenge to read aloud, uh, actually remind us of the stones in the breastplate of the high priest. There were 12 stones, precious stones, in the breastplate of the high priest. Each one had inscribed on a name of the tribes of Israel. And there were for the purpose of reminding the tree priest of who he represented before God. Interestingly, though, in Revelation, the, name, the stones adorn the 12 foundations with the names of the apostles, not the gates with the names of the tribes of Israel. There's another reversal for you. I think the more obvious meaning of all these precious stones really is just right out there where we can see it. We often don't see it. All the pearls and the gold and all these kind of things, what they all have in common is construction materials for this new Jerusalem is they don't tarnish or corrode. They're permanent. Another important phrase we see in this description is the street of the city. That phrase, the street of the city, occurred one other time in Revelation. Our first-time listener might have picked up on this. It occurred back in chapter 11 in the street of the city was where the bodies of the two witnesses unburied lay after they were martyred. Now in the New Jerusalem, rather than this corrupted street, 
we have a street of the city that is pure gold like transparent glass, a stark contrast to the corrupted city of Jerusalem, which was called in chapter 11, Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So let's keep moving here. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anything, anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. <clears throat> Probably the most shocking statement in all of Revelation for the first century Jewish reader, Jewish Christian reader who was reading it, was in verse 22, I saw no temple in the city. Ezekiel's prophecy of the end time temple occupied four chapters. Verses 40, chapters 40 through 43. Other Jewish apocalyptic literature of the first century often centered on the temple. But in this vision, in John's vision, the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The image in this passage echoed Isaiah's prophecies for the future glory of Zion and Jerusalem. A lot of interesting parallels. And the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of nations shall come to you. Your gates shall be opened continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings in procession. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. In the first creation back in Genesis, if you read that carefully, and I know he was just pointed out when we went through this not too long ago, that the creation of the sun and moon was after the creation of light. In fact, the, what it says about the sun and the moon in Genesis is they really are more like a clock and a calendar than anything else. Uh, they were the signs for the seasons and the days and the years. They ruled over the day and the night. And the sun and the moon have never been necessary for the presence of light in God's creation. It could be there without them. That's something to think about that's kind of interesting. As one commentator said, there may or may not be a literal sun or moon in the new cosmos. But what John was told for sure was that the light of the city was the glory of God and its lamp was the Lamb. We read in Isaiah 60 that the Lord will be your everlasting light and God will be your glory. It's interesting that passage and a lot of the ones we've been encountering in, in, in Revelation as well uh, the early Christians who had a knowledge of both Hebrew and Greek Old Testament 
often began making the distinction between the Lord, which was the translation of the Hebrew Yahweh, or the Greek Kyrios, and God, which is the translation of the Hebrew Elohim, and the Greek Theos, where the text connected two of them like it does in this one and in Isaiah 60, where, the more, where God was in more generic designation for the Godhead, and Lord was connected with Jesus. A phrase like Lord God Almighty here would have been interpreted as a reference to the fullness of the triune God by those early believers. I noted last week when we looked at verse 3, it literally read, and themselves peoples of him they will be. Okay, uh, Having plural peoples and that emphatic pronoun they, and this could be a cross-reference to chapter 7 where the great multitude is described from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages. In this vision of the New Jerusalem, the nations aren't playing a secondary role like they were in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 60. They were coming as part of the people of God. This does, however, bring up something of note. The activity of the nations or the peoples may indicate that all those who are redeemed will retain something of those identities. There will be some heritage that we'll be bringing into the new heaven and new earth that's based on who we were on this heaven, on this earth and the people we were among. If nothing else, it would serve as a demonstration of the reversal of the conflicts and the hatred between people groups so common throughout human history where sin dominated. And the result would be something along the lines of what Paul's words to the Ephesians in chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, and he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In Isaiah's prophecy, the gates of the new Jerusalem were never shut by day, uh, were, were never shut by day, and there will be no night, no night. The gates of the ancient cities were intentionally shut at night because of thieves and enemies. Uh, but now we have this continuous procession. Isaiah had this procession of glory. It just kept coming and coming and coming into the city. Well, you have a picture there. But really what we're looking at is a procession that has been completed. Because the this nations and all the peoples in them are part of the people of God. They're part of the bride of the Lamb. In verse 27, we see a summary of those who were not allowed to enter. This was similar to verse 8 sharing two of the prohibitions that we saw earlier. The first one here is unclean or impure. Uh, it had to do with anything that was, uh, that was not to be allowed in the earthly temple because it would profane that sacred space. In the new creation, all space is sacred space. And there will be nothing to profane it. The next thing you see is anyone who does what is detestable, and that's actually related to the word that was translated the same in verse 8. They both come from the root to stink. No stinking things in heaven. False, which is pseudos, was related to the liars, pseudes, in verse 8. And both of these, 8 and 27, end with a reminder 
that the New Jerusalem would only be populated by those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now there's a chapter break here in your Bibles, but it really the first five verses of chapter 22 go on and continue to describe New Jerusalem. And I, okay, there we go, got it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the, street, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. <clears throat> Interesting, all of the references to living water or water of life in the New Testament are found in either the Gospel of John or Revelation. We did get introduced to this already in Revelation back in chapter 7. We read, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And earlier, in chapter 21, that we looked at last week, uh, To the thirsty I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. We will see one more statement about the, uh, this water of life later on in the epilogue. The phrase also has roots in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. As Zechariah has, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Some other Old Testament references, Ezekiel 47 has, uh, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold. And in Joel chapter 3, In that day a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. And then I've got a couple references from John, uh, the Gospel of John here, where Jesus said in chapter 4, verse 14, Whoever drinks the water that I, have, that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And in John 7, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Of course, the tree of life also played a large part in the picture of creation in the fall in, from Genesis 1 to 3. And it's important in the New Jerusalem as well. Uh, there's probably an allusion here to Ezekiel. And on the banks of both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every, mouth, every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. As we've already noted, in John's vision of the city, there was no temple. It was all the temple. There's some interesting challenges, though, in this verse. It gets back to our, our symbolic stuff again. Uh, in verse 2 of chapter 22, uh, the, Revelation, the text says that the tree of life, which is singular, was on both sides of the river, which is flowing out from there. So, uh, you know, how many trees were there? 
there's a debate for those who want to get into that kind of thing. Uh, the other involves 12 kinds of fruit, yielding as fruit each month. Well, months, of course, are measures of time based on lunar cycles, but what does that mean in a new creation where there apparently has no need for a sun or the moon? These types of what appear to be contradictory images uh, were a regular part of apocalyptic literature in the first century. Uh, people would have understood what was going on with them. I've read some uh, interesting mental gymnastics trying to uh, explain these two images that are actually just being taken too literally. That the leaves of the tree of life were the healing of the nations probably recalled the earlier scenes from Revelation where the redeemed include the people from every nation. And finally, the last three verses really kind of, I think, are important because they not only wrap up all the visions, but they say a lot to us. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The new Jerusalem will no longer have anything accursed. The effects of the fall of man were completely removed when it was renovated. John saw uh, it was also the place where the throne of God and of the Lamb. Uh, like the temple in verse 22, throne is singular. Uh, the descriptions of one throne, one temple, one shared title, Alpha and Omega, one face, are clear statements of divine unity. Uh, the kind of thing that gave rise to the Trinitarian thinking later in the, in the early church. These final three verses can be taken as fulfillment, I think, of the scene we saw back in chapter 5 that started all these visions. I'm just going to read it to you. And they sang a new song, this was the creatures and the elders, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood your ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who received power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever the image of the throne in uh, chapter 22 was followed by five important statements about the future of his servants and that's the word douloi by the way which means slaves should be okay with that his servants will worship him. The word translated worship or serve means to carry out religious duties, but uh, I think we need to be careful not to make that range of duties too narrow. Uh, every aspect of our lives as disciples of Jesus can be considered duties of worship. Which is why Paul used the same word 
in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is their spiritual worship. There's that same word, Trello. Also directly relates to the next point, that we'll have his name on our foreheads. Names on foreheads have been prominent throughout Revelation, uh, beginning in chapter 7. In the Jewish pool of images that this is built on, the forehead was a seat of a person's perception, a worldview, the place of your values. What was written and marked on the foreheads was regularly used in Revelation to distinguish those who were followers of the beast from those who were followers of the Lamb. In Romans 12, 1, 12 verse 2, Paul wrote, Do not be conformed with this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. His exhortation to be transformed by the renewal of your mind is another way of expressing the idea of a name on a forehead. His servants will see his face. The hope of the Old Testament was summarized in that blessing in number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now the transcendent God, remember transcendent, who created the heaven and earth does not have a literal face or arms or fingers or eyes, or any other human attribute the scripture uses to describe God's person or activities. These are examples of analogous language that are intended to help us understand a God that's full, far, far beyond our full understanding. Jesus taught God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In fact, a God that we can fully comprehend is really just the ultimate idol made entirely in our image. So what does it mean we will see his face? The answer is pretty simple, really. They, we, will see the face of Jesus. That's the face that we'll see. John said as much in his gospel when he wrote, no one has ever seen God the only God who is the Father's, at the Father's side has made him known. And this truth did not change after the resurrection. We will see the face of God in the face of Jesus. Paul understood this as well in 2 Corinthians 4 when he wrote, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of this, give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the beauty and mystery of the Incarnation. We look upon the face of Jesus, we look upon the face of God. So also the words about light relate to kind of the next part of this, the final, one of the other things in the last couple pieces. His servants will need no light or lamp of sun, lamp or sun. It's a state, restatement of verse 23, really, in chapter 21. It was also an important theme in John's theology. You know, the, the, there are 73 occurrences of the word light in the New Testament, and 33 of them are in the Gospel and writings of John. 
uh, including Revelation. The prologue to the Gospel of John included in him the word Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives life to everyone, was coming into the world. And later in the Gospel of John, recorded Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And finally, we find that his servants will reign with him forever and ever. This last statement about the vision of the New Jerusalem was, made, was in, and is important. Uh, we tend to understand the message of the gospel as primarily a message of salvation. It's actually more consistent with both the Old Testament and the New Testament to understand it primarily as a message of sovereignty. The kingdom of God is at hand, and Jesus is king. If we leave out that part of the gospel message, we have missed the whole point of Revelation and have neglected important parts of God's work in redemptive history. Uh, theologian, New Testament theologian Scott McKnight has argued that the good news is the King Jesus gospel. It's a good way to remember it. And we need to refuse any framing of our world that might detract us from the certainty of that truth. Since the introduction of the Lamb, standing as, as though he had been slain back in chapter 5, verse 6, the Lamb's been central to John's visions. There have been 28 occurrences of the words, the Lamb. The text we have been considering for the last, last week and this week uh, has the final seven, beginning in 21, verse 9, and ending here in 22, verse 3. Throughout Revelation, the title, the Lamb, has represented Jesus and his glorified humanity and has taken on various forms in Revelation as the God-man. They've all been within that imminent creation because no one can see beyond that into the transcendence of where God really is. As we learn from the accounts of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus in the Gospels and Acts, the incarnation of Jesus is a permanent state that he has assumed in order to redeem humanity from the fall. He will retain his human nature throughout eternity, permanently united with his divine nature of the Son. Our resurrected bodies will be like his in glorified humanity, not deity. Paul argues that in 1 Corinthians 15. And this will be in a physical reality in a physical world of the new earth. Our existence will always be imminent, but it will be infused with the presence of God through the Holy Spirit and connected with the new heaven in ways that only come about through the renovation of both heaven and earth. And our future will be shared with the Lamb, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords over all creation, but unlike the demands of some rulers throughout human history, our worshipful service to him will be completely justified and motivated by his perfect love that brought us to that place. And we will not be mere subjects. We will reign with him forever and ever. So when we get the musicians back up here for our final song, guys, come on back up. I'm going to, as a closing kind of prayer. You can think of it as a prayer if you want to 
bow your heads or whatever. It's a poem uh, that was first published in 1857, written by Ann Cousin. And you can still find parts of this poem. It's quite a lengthy poem and hymnals under the title of Emanuel's Land. And, uh, you know, I could try to sing this for you. That'd be a real letdown in quality to what we're used to. So I'm going to read you three stanzas from this, this poem. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams of earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There too in ocean fullness his mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove, and I the dews of sorrow are lustered with his love. I'll bless the hand that guided, I'll bless the heart that planned, when throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The eye, bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. <laughs>